Right, Steve, so I'm back. I'm back from America. I can't say I'm very happy. Yes, did you enjoy yourself swanning around, playing golf, pretending to work? Well, we'll we'll get into that in a minute, but I'm not very happy that you've been moonlighting, haven't you? You've been off gallivanting around with Dan on the Top 100s podcast. Honestly, I go away for one week. You get one sniff of the barmaid's apron, or whatever the expression is. Like where do I even begin to deconstruct that? Um, yeah, I uh, I stepped in for you. Got on my flight and I was like, oh, that's great, a new podcast, from NCG. What's this? It's like, oh my god, it's my partner in crime. What popping well, up on someone else's podcast? Well, we had a new list and it, and we needed to publicise said list. And you're supposed to be the host of that podcast and you're not and you weren't around, so someone else had to fill your shoes. But for older listeners, consider me like the um, who was super sub in the 70s? Oh, uh, is it David Hodgson for... or something like that? Played for Liverpool. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Can, uh, consider David me the David Fairclough? David, possibly. Consider me the super sub of NCG podcasts, ready and able to step in. I was so cross, I haven't even listened to it. Um, I can't complain too much, can I? Because I did have a pretty amazing week last week uh, at the PGA show in Orlando. Um, uh, we're gonna, I'm, I'm going to talk about this quite a lot on our All The Gear podcast. I don't want to get into it in too much detail, but it's, it is a brilliant week. Have you ever been? I've never been to the PGA show, no. I I think I had one occasion um, where I might have gone and then I didn't go. And it was the opportunity was whipped from underneath you, was it? It was. You had a new editor who started and he went. Uh, I remember, yeah. The early and, days of Alex Perry. Exactly. And ever since then... Um, I have been cruelly discarded when it comes to a week at the PGA show. Yeah. Well, I, I like to say, we're going to talk about it on our All The Gear podcast. We're going to do an inside the PGA show sort of deep dive into our week and all of the fascinating and weird and wonderful things that you see there. Right, right. There uh, is be, one... before, yeah, there's one thing. Am I going to ask you the thing? Or there's one thing I want to know. You're going to ask did me you, if I hit. Did you hit the green at Sawgrass? Of course I did. That's my third trip, I think, or possibly even fourth trip to Sawgrass, and I've got 100% record. I I think people, should be able, people should be able to buy me and the players. They should have me on the tee saying, would you like Tom to edit for you? I think I've got a 20% record. <laughs> That's about it. Um, so I was, I was just going to say, because it, fir- it was the first golf that I've played. Um, I played some foursomes at Christmas, and I played our work game of golf at Christmas and I had a few balls when I was in Portugal testing equipment in the middle of December but I just not play golf at all and when I first got into the golf industry I couldn't believe all these people who are in the golf industry sort of said oh, I barely played I barely played because I've always just been this absolute gannet for uh, whacking balls on a range and practice 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 and I don't know what's happened maybe it's middle age or kids or whatever but I've just got out of the habit so I am now the sort of cliched uh, golf industry person who t- turns up in Orlando having not played for however many months and then plays four times in three days and it's a pretty it's a pretty odd experience so people I think people will sort of relate to this you kind of golf is okay at the start when you've kind of got this sort of joie de vivre about the whole thing and it's like you're playing with a bit of freedom your body's got no golf aches and pains you're not really bothered about the score so we played at the weekend at Sawgrass and my golf was pretty good. And then I turned up for the corporate golf on Monday and Tuesday. Well, I mean, 
we had a car journey right enough two and a half hours and there's some early starts and jet lag and whatever else and pile up the excuses but honestly it was the worst golf i've played in 25 years i played with my friend mark addison from uh, jcb on monday who'd kindly invited me to his golf day uh, and it's just embarrassing steve absolutely embarrassing left and right off the tee shanks fats thins couldn't even chip or put nothing and then the next day exactly the same so i don't know what that is all about but i need to go and i need to do something about my golf because it's just it's not good you need to play some golf well yeah i need to have not, a lesson. A, not that i've played any golf i'm playing this weekend we can talk about that next time can't we let's not we get can. ahead of ourselves yeah um, yeah but i would i would when we when we get this all the gear podcast published i would recommend people go and listen to it because pga show is a cool story it's a cool week there's lots of good stuff there there's lots of kind of um great in the good of the golf industry uh yeah so it's a good it's a good tale shall we say Um, so today we've got a lot to talk about today, haven't we? We have indeed. So we're going to kind of, it's kind of a twin centre podcast, isn't it? Yeah, you'll have to bear with us a little bit as we meander from one topic to another, seemingly unrelated, but in the news. Yeah, so um, last week or the week before last, we podded um, about England golf's um changed the entry criteria to their elite some of their elite tournaments and this was basically in a nutshell in oversubscribed elite tournaments they were going to analyze people's playing records uh, and they would prioritize people who had competition rounds in their playing histories over those with lots of um, casual rounds that they'd submitted Um, and we thought this was kind of like quite a big big thing to be doing it sounds small but actually the implications are pretty significant um and that that podcast has done an awful lot of numbers um it's obviously triggered quite a lot of things with a lot of you um it has implications for the club golfer um in terms of entries to opens and your own internal competitions just raises a lot of questions about whs itself um so steve's then kind of written about that again today about his um his views on how some of those problems could be negated and again it seems to have triggered things with people and um, so we want to touch on that um, and then we don't think we can get away with um, without talking about um, Mr Reed and the incidents at the weekend I mean we should start with that I think because what I mean what first of all what a weekend's golf right yeah, it was fabulous wasn't it I actually watched it well there you um, go I mean so uh, it just shows you doesn't it um you know, all you need to get um, all you need to get people involved is, you know, a hero, a perceived pantomime villain and a great golf course and some great golf. Um, and I just thought it was I mean, that's the first time I've watched any serious golf in quite a long time. Um, and it was and it was great. And I watched pretty much it down the stretch on Monday because obviously it finished Monday. I watched a fair chunk of Saturday, uh, Sunday, sorry, although I didn't see the incident in question, but I've done my tutorials <laughs> and my learning online. 
Um, and I just thought, yeah, this is this is it. This is the secret. This is how you do it. Um, have a great tournament. Have some really stellar players in it. Have a golf course where you can have drama, um, and everything fits into place really nicely. And it and it's just you know, it's disappointing for me sometimes that um, the various organisations and the way they structure their events and where they're played, and obviously money's a huge part of that. Um, sometimes forgets that because we could have golf like this like nearly every week, couldn't we? We just don't. Yeah, that's yeah, right enough. I mean, just to sort of um, begin at the beginning, like you said, you watch the golf like that um, that Middle East golf. Um, so let's just put aside all of the issues and just deal with what's in front of us. It, I used to absolutely love waking up on a winter's morning, turning that on. It's like black outside here and minus five and you turn on the blue skies and the short sleeves of of and the sort of resplendent green fairways of Abu Dhabi or Dubai or whatever and it's just an amazing spectacle isn't it um and I think that is yeah a really cool thing a bit like the PGA Tour on a, on a Sunday evening it's just kind of like it's escapism basically so it's one of the it's one of the best swings of the year on the DP World Tour. I would have to I would I would say. And, um, and now Tom, we're getting into some really decent golf in America as well. You know, Riviera, for example, and, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. That traditional sort of February swing, Pebble Beach. I know, I know, I know. People have mixed views on celebrity prams and stuff, but I always think that you know when you start seeing that golf course at this time of year, then you know that and the and and, it, and we're still far away from spring, but it's starting to get a bit lighter. You know, at the night, you think right, you know, the years the years beginning now. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of extending the season for us. Um, but then I think like everything else, like that that desert golf, it, over time, I mean, it does get a bit tired. Like first of all, I think there's some sort of like contract between course developers and the funders of the golf course in the Middle East, where you you must finish on a par five over water. But I mean, is there, are there any golf courses in that region that don't finish on a par five over water? No, but I mean, I think Rory would tell you that he's had his fair shares of ups and downs over the years on that. I mean, he's lost the tournament there, hasn't he, at that hole? Didn't he lose it there last year on that hole? So, I mean, I suppose it does. I mean, Poulter was looking at a very good finish, wasn't he, on Monday until he dunked his ball in the in, yeah. in the water and dropped a couple of places. It's just a tiny bit contrived for the purest amongst us. Um, anyway, that aside, so then you've kind of got this very, very strange thing where... Um, some of the live players are able to play still on the European tour. And we've got this kind of obviously decent European tour field. And we end up with this like proper good versus evil um, duel between McElroy and Reed, but obviously with the background of Teagate and whatever else. Don't want to particularly get dwell, dwell on that. Um, but I mean, I don't know. There's so much conflation, isn't there, between... God, this is so exciting. This is just what golf needs. We need people getting together. Why can't people put their differences aside? Like, that is true. And what we watched at the weekend was an unbelievable spectacle. Doesn't mean that the reason it's happened is right. That's like conflation of two points, isn't it? Um, But it was an unbelievably engaging thing. I think it was like made even even more interesting with the Monday finish because we were all in our offices. Uh, like I was in our office, like just glued to it because it was just the last three or four holes, just absolutely ridiculous. Um, and everyone's just sort of rooting for 
the good guy McElroy against the pantomime villain Reed. And that was exacerbated by this rules incident. Um, now, we're kind of nervous, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Can, can we get through the next 10 minutes without being subject to legal action? Yes, Tom, I'm, I'm confident we can. So we don't we let's just get this straight, right? We are not accusing Patrick Reed of cheating. Plenty of people do accuse Patrick Reed of cheating. We are absolutely. I mean, look, I, I, I'm going to take the event as I find it and I'll talk to you from a rules perspective about it um, and I'll tell you what the rules say. Um, and then as they yes, have I mean, done on social media, people will make their own mind up about it. I think McElroy himself said, and I do sort of feel a bit for Patrick Reed, that um, he does suffer a bit by what's gone before. Um, we'll touch on that. But it's, it's a bit like that old uh, tabloid trick where they would have a headline where it would say footballer caught in love tryst. And then apropos of nothing, they'd have a picture of John Terry next to it. So the footballer's not named in the piece, but there's a great big full-size picture of John Terry who have, might have played at the weekend. So there is a kind of um, guilty by association type of thing going on, isn't there? Um, yeah, yeah, don't sue us, John. So, <laughs> so we've got this scenario where Reed hit his tee shot off the 17th, which is a drivable par four, and it's clubbed into a tree, not especially clear which tree. Um, and then they've arrived at the scene, and then there's a ball up a tree, and then between Reed and the referee, they've tried to identify that ball and eventually satisfied themselves that they have identified the ball and plays continued. So, and people are cross because they're saying, the ball went in a different tree, first of all. Um, they're also saying that uh, the sort of order of things was wrong, as in Reed identified his ball after the referee had said what the ball looked like. Um, and various sort of nuances about what could have been done differently. So I guess if we just sort of go go through this step by step, like there is a referee there. Um, so do you think that the referee could have done any more? I mean, I, I, I'm pretty satisfied with what he did. I, I know there are a lot of uh, people, and including some players who've been on Twitter this morning, um, who've said otherwise. But I mean, I mean, ultimately, it, it's, it's written in Rule 7.1. A player is responsible for finding their ball in play after each stroke. I mean, ultimately, it's the player's responsibility. Um, now, I've not played that course before. Have you? You might have uh, done. Is it, is it in Dubai? Yeah, I have yeah. yeah, I have, yeah. So that there's some suggestion that 17's blind off that tee shot. You can't actually see it. You see where you're hitting to. I don't know whether that's true or not. I've just read it, it somewhere. It, I, I think you could probably see that we can see the top of those trees, definitely. So I, I think that, um, I, I think it's probably not beyond the bounds of possibility that um, from the tee shot, it would have been difficult to see which tree your ball went into i mean certainly that oh, has happened. i mean uh, i mean but we all know that like you might have a very fixed idea in your head about which tree your ball went into and you might get up there and it might have been a totally different tree yeah. so yeah and so and this is where i think the dp world tour statement is interesting afterwards where um they say two on course referees and several marshals identified that patrick reed's ball had become lodged in a specific tree following his tee shot on 17. So I think that's important, at least in the initial case, because it implies to me at least that 
he was directed to said tree by the marshals and the on-course referees. Then, obviously, the chief referee joins the player and the DP World Tour statement says he's asked to identify his distinctive ball markings. Using binoculars, it says the chief referee was satisfied that a ball with those markings was lodged in the tree. The player subsequently took an unplayable penalty drop. Now, all this is like, you can you can hear all this. You can hear the conversation between Patrick Reed and um, Kevin Feeney because it's, um, it's on a Sky Sports Golf tweet um, that I think they put out either like late Sunday or Monday. So you can actually hear the conversation between the two. Um, and I actually listened to some of this. Um, and, and I think it goes back to the point where I was saying, you know, ultimately it's a player's responsibility for identifying their ball. So they're looking at it. He's looking at it, Feeney, with the binoculars. He, he says to Reed, is this definitely your ball? He tells him he needs to be certain. Um, I think Reed says something, so, something along the lines of paraphrasing here. It certainly looks like it. And Feeney says, it's not enough. You need a definite marking. He actually says, we need a number rather than a black line because it could be any black line. And I think at that point, Reed talks about how he marks his ball in a particular way. Feeney then confirms that he can see a ball with that marking on it that's in the tree. He's then satisfied that um, that the ball is his. Um, the, the, the ball is Reed's and, and we basically go on from there. And I think it's interesting just going into little bits of Rule 7.2 because I do think there is some latitude for what happened there within 7.2 with and then we'll talk a little bit about the video that comes afterwards so 7.2 and apologies i'm going to read some of this out rule 7.2 is called how to identify ball and it says a player's ball at rest may be identified in any one of these ways there's an obvious one by the player or anyone else seeing a ball come to rest in circumstances where it's known to be the player's ball right player comes to ball partner sees the ball spectator sees the ball in a tree um but it also says uh, by seeing the players identifying mark on the ball uh and then the third one which i thought was really interesting actually and i'm not sure too many people have thought about this and it might be i'm, I'm completely on a wrong tangent here but it's worth discussing the third one says by finding a ball with the same brand model number and condition as the player's ball in an area where the player's ball is expected to be I think that's quite interesting that because it almost allows for the for the the possibility that as we saw you know was the ball expected to be there was it the same brand model number and condition as the player's ball well if, if those things are satisfied then the ball at rest can be identified in that way does that make sense it does yeah and I think I, that was related to a point I was going to make so if you sort of ignore so there's, there's there's one sort of thing about Patrick Reed looking through some binoculars, seeing a golf ball and saying that's mine, and like a lot of the debate centres around on whether he can actually be sure it is it's his or not. There is a sort of different way of looking at it and saying, so if I'm playing with you, right, and I and we hit my um, we hit I hit my tee shot in a bush, or if I hit my tee shot in a pond, actually probably a better example. And we agree beyond reasonable doubt, or whatever the expression is, that my ball's in the pond. I can then proceed with a lateral drop and continue, can't I? Well, you so, have to be known or virtually certain. I mean, like beyond reasonable doubt. I know you're using a term there, but in that circumstance, known or 
virtually certain is basically you saw it splash someone else saw it splash or you're at least 95 percent certain that it splashed in this instance nobody's arguing and when i say nobody i mean like the entirety of golf twitter no one is saying that patrick reed's ball's not up a tree so that's the sort of thing that everyone's agreed on so if everyone's agreed that patrick reed's ball's up a tree the trees are kind of 10 feet apart so does it actually matter whether that's his ball or not because everyone has said yeah your ball's up a tree so let's have a drop down here and carry on so again i'm just going to put to one side patrick reed and his binoculars identifying a ball that may or may not be his it's quite it's an inconsistency in the rule isn't it because why do i have to identify a ball in one circumstances i don't hit my ball in a pond and have to identify it so why can't we say if playing partners, or in this case, the referee agrees that the ball is in a bush or the ball is down a hole or the ball is up a tree, then we can just drop it at the nearest point we think and carry on. I suppose part of the issue here is that um, where the player then took relief from, does that give the player an advantage or not? For example, you know, did he, did he, for example, I, I don't know, did he have a clear shot to the green from where he dropped it from? Would he have had that same shot? Um, if it had been in the first tree or would he have had to then, would he have had a tree in his way? Do you see how it becomes materially different then? Because it alters, yeah. it alters the next, it alters basically the next action. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. Um, because I mean, that, that has been a thread that I've seen on social. It's like, does it actually matter? Um, so when, but, uh, when I play with, when I play with, when I play with Dan on golf trips, we used to have a thing called a bush rule. So if you're playing somewhere that had loads of like gorse or whatever, instead of having to find your ball, or play three off the tee, we just said, well, we both agree it's in the bush, so you can drop it next to the bush and carry on. And it used to drive me mad because Dan was forever taking bush drops and it's not a severe enough penalty. And I, so I agree because, yeah, yeah. I mean, the point you make is really valid. So it, it does matter which tree it's in. It does matter that you can identify it. Okay, so let's put that to bed. But I wanted to, I wanted to, um, put that last point on how to identify a ball which is by finding a ball with the same brand model number and condition as the player's ball and area where is it where is it is expected to be because i don't know whether it's meant to or not and it might be as i say that i'm completely reading this wrong but i do think it does allow the possibility of what happened to happen player looks up player is sent to a particular tree say for example player looks up sees a ball that has markings that could be demonstrably similar to his is the same number same brand i mean it's on you know like uh i i read some twitter things where people were saying well a lot of people play a certain brand of ball a certain number of ball with a certain line on it it fine it fine fair enough but but the rules kind of says if it's if it is all of those things then it can be identified in that way I don't know. Maybe I've got that. Maybe I've got that wrong. I don't know, but that, that's how I sort of feel about it. It sort of jumped. It, it sort of jumped out at me a little bit, and because because the obvious question then is like, and we'll talk about the video evidence in a minute. But the obvious question is, well, his ball wasn't in that tree. Video evidence has proved that. So how could he then identify a ball in that tree that wasn't well, his ball? And the reason I'm saying is because, well, if it was the same brand, model, number and condition in an area where it was expected to be, then rule 7.2 says a ball at rest can maybe be identified in one of those in, in that way. So that's what you're saying is that's sort of good enough. I don't know if that's I, mean, I don't know if I'm if I'm leaning too much into the rule there, but 
Yeah, I see what you mean. It, but I mean, the, it's everything's about interpretation. But like, I guess, I guess, yeah, yeah, it's like that. It's good enough. I mean, it, I've, I've got a links point, which is we ought to probably go and test this. If a ball's up a tree and you've got some binoculars at the bottom, like how how much detail can you see on the ball from that distance, even with some binoculars? And what are the chances of your distinctive markings being pointing at the binoculars? That is all very tricky. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think it's unusual, though. I mean, this again was something that came out, which, which I actually wrote about because I sort of couldn't believe there was a bit of a fluster about this, which was, you know, the idea of using binoculars or a, or a distance measuring device in the first place to look for the ball. I mean, like it's, it's perfectly allowed. It's, it's in the clarifications um, rather than in the like if you got the normal rule book, you wouldn't find it. But it's in the clarifications that you can do it. Um, and it's not an unknown thing. I mean, like I, referees frequently carry binoculars around for that exact purpose, as well as obviously, you know, and then so the sort of the, the, I imagine it won't be the final thing, but the sort of next thing we wanted to cover is this point that um, Eamon Lynch has been making about um, Reed forfeiting the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think he uh, again. This is you can you can watch this on Twitter. Uh, um, I would I would do so if you um, if you uh, have the time to do it because Eamon is obviously a very eloquent speaker on um, golf in general and his pieces are. Shouldn't be giving him a plug here, should I? Should be should be getting him to tell him to read us. But he's he's very very good at what well, he, he does. Well, he, he's unbelievable writer, isn't he? Which again is. is not to be conflated with you. You don't have to agree with every word he says, but he makes some unbelievably compelling arguments about big topics. And, and obviously he was talking about this. <laughs> One of the things he said that caught my eye were I might be paraphrasing this a little bit, but he basically said um, that <laughs> the referee should have called for a ladder. Um, before taking the word of Patrick Reed in that situation, the idea that um, players deserve something of the benefit of the doubt when it comes to these decisions, but his belief that that Reed had essentially exhausted those, and and I didn't think I didn't agree with that actually, um, because I I you know whatever you think about about the situation and everyone has their views and the situations that have gone before, you know I'm a I'm a rules official. Um, and the the rules themselves don't deal with reputation. They don't deal with drama. They deal with applying the rules and resolving questions of fact. And I and I wouldn't like to think that um, I would ever give a ruling out on a golf course based on a whether I knew somebody or not, and b what I thought their reputation was, whether for good or bad. Right? Um, I I would like to think that I just came to the situation. The, it was it was explained to me. I interpreted the rules as best as I could possibly could to give a decision in that situation. I wouldn't like sort of external factors kind of getting in the way. I think they sort of cloud the issue really. I think it's I think it's a bit dangerous if you start. There's this thing. There's this idea in football, isn't there? There's that some players are like notorious for getting bookings because you know certain officials don't like them there's that myth that this perpetuates i think isn't there throughout the game and i and i think that it would be a sad day if golf actually if that if that's what happened you know out there you know let's just take this let's take the facts as we find them let's take the situation as we find them and then make the ruling accordingly don't let anything that's outside of the book get in the way it's why the book's 500 pages you know, including the official guide to try and give us as much as much as possible to deal with anything that we find. Yeah, I think 
so I think, well, first of all, no place for ladders in sport. Them, <laughs> mark them down under technology. What about climbing the ladder? Yeah, you can't you can't be rolling out ladders. Um, like golf is weird enough as it is. I mean, imagine like we'd be a laughing stock of the sporting world if they'd end up up a ladder up that tree. Um, but I think like the point he's making is sort of polemic, isn't it? And um, it, you can see why that would get people triggered and uh, people like sticking the boot in. So I guess that's why he's written it. Um, like to your point, like absolutely the you can't be refereeing on reputation. Um, but I don't know if Kevin Feeney was the, the referee with that match or whether he was called in as kind of one of... He's, he's called in, I think, as the chief referee. I mean, your heart, so your heart would sink, wouldn't it? Like, there's no way that he hasn't turned up and thought, oh, God, it's him. Because he he would just he just knows it's going to be high profile. But But all decisions on TV that attract a camera are high profile. No, come on, like that. I mean, really? A, I mean, there was you, the there, there was the there was the one with um, Sergio Garcia uh, where he um, right where 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 he basically and it, it's just uh, it was it was nothing, but it was the it was um, about a ball in a in that wasn't in a penalty area, but was in some bushes, I think, or some reeds, and they couldn't find them. And that was where the infamous. The reason I mentioned that is because that's where the infamous. I won't be playing on this tour for very long. Line came from yeah, again, yeah, yeah. Para- paraphrasing. So, yeah. like, whenever you're involved in a ruling with a top player, regardless of who they are, there is there is going to be pressure there, and there is going to be because you're going to have a TV camera stuck on you, and you're going to have millions of people watching at home. So, I don't necessarily think that just because it's Patrick that that would apply. He's a very very good and experienced referee as well. He knows his stuff. So, but I mean, to to ex- like just to use the football analogy because it's something that we all understand. So you're telling me that um, when a player's when a referee has got Jack Grealish in a game, he's not kind of quite attuned to it, the fact he might try and win the odd free kick. The referee's a human being. He was watched Jack Grealish throw himself to the floor for the previous five seasons. So how can he how can he or she put that out of their minds? Well, the the referee, as I say, should just take the circumstances as they find them and rule on it accordingly. Is it a foul or isn't it? I don't disagree that that is exactly what they should do. I'm saying that as a human being with privy to things in the round, not just in a clinical is it or isn't it sense, is that's very difficult to do. And I actually think that that is exactly what Kevin Feeney has done here. And he's just sort of reffed it as he's seen it, hasn't he? Because at the end of the day, he's got to rely on the player saying, yeah, that's my ball. There's not a lot else he can do, is it? He doesn't know if it's his ball or not, does he? Yeah, and I, and I get sort of uncomfortable when um, we talk about some of the lengths or, some, or when, when they talk about some of the lengths that the referee should have taken to identify the ball. As I said earlier on, ultimately, the player is responsible for identifying their own ball. I mean, goodness me! Hopefully, we're not going to get into criticism of referees in golf. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you a dark day. I'm going to give you an example of this, and it's something specific to me. And, and other and other referees might tell you differently, but this was how I was sort of taught. And 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 the idea was that you went to uh, a particular um, part of the part of the course. Player had like sprayed one right, for example, into a load of trees. Um, so you're going around, you're ahead of the player because you're looking, the players on the tee, you're looking down. So you're ahead of them. So you can theoretically go there and start the search beforehand. 
So you you go there, you find a ball, right? I mean, actually, what I tend to do is I wait for the player to get there before we even start the search because um, it, it takes some of this stuff out there. But you get there and you find a ball. The player says to you, is that my ball? And you say to a player, it's a Titleist 2. And the player says, yeah, that's my ball. So they go and they hit it out of the trees and then they find out as they get to their ball that it isn't actually their Titleist 2, it's another Titleist 2. Right, well, they're now getting a penalty and you've essentially told them to hit it. Um, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. because you said because you they've said is that my ball and you've either uh, subconsciously or inadvertently corroborated what their view is Titleist too right that's my ball so we're told I mean I was always told don't talk in specifics about brands or markings you know when a player is identifying a golf ball basically get them to do it so you know then then if they say my ball's got X Y Z on it right well that's your ball then isn't it but it's dangerous, I think, when you ask referees to get into the process of identifying golf balls for a player because it has ramifications that are far outside this incident. But yeah, of course they shouldn't be, and there should, like, basically, there should be no need for referees. Like the role of a referee is to clarify how to proceed, isn't it? That's it, because like it's, the rest of it is all down to your own integrity. The only reason the referee should be called in is saying we don't know what to do here. Yeah that's it um but i mean the the lynch point is good so like do you think there would have been the same ferrara if it had been mcelroy up the tree no no so that is i mean that that is a different point from how the referees ruled it like referee would presumably have ruled it in exactly the same way but would the internet have exploded to use modern parlance in exactly the same way it probably wouldn't, would it? Well, it didn't, did it? When a very similar circumstance uh, between the, not similar circumstance, but uh, a ruling that involved the two players and uh, embedded balls and where they finished um, in another tournament, didn't it? One got a lot more scrutiny than the other. Yeah, I know, yeah. So, I mean, it sort of, it all just speaks to that to that point doesn't it and this is the sort of like this is a club golf podcast and it's it's just this golf's moral code isn't it like cheating at golf in the eyes of golf is literally the worst thing you can do like we like people um sort of lord people who are like sort of borderline alcoholics have affairs get in their cars after about eight pints at the golf club and drive home uh multiple wives whatever goodness me write down three instead of four and you're out i've seen players had to have to leave clubs yeah for 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 allegations like that you know no more than allegations but i've seen players have to leave clubs for it It is like i think in in our sport particularly our level as well we're all levels it's the worst thing you can do it's like the worst thing you can do i mean it's just which is quite an odd thing isn't it like it's a game so yeah like literally like everyone sort of laughs about drink driving but kick your ball out from under a bush and you'll be out of the club faster than you can say leather wedge but but that that goes back to the ethos of the game you know like you know we we try and compare golf with other sports and they can't be really you know in football there is an there is a referee who's watching all of the game you know in uh, similar things in hockey you know, in the in the NFL there's teams of referees and umpires watching the game you know when you've got 
an area where golf's played in that's so wide i mean ultimately the sport has to be self-policing so if you're not going to do it if you're not going to uphold the integrity then the whole thing will fall apart and so everyone feels very passionately about that don't they but i think there is a second point linked to that which is again down to the way golf is and the way golf clubs are so in this instance if if patrick reed says that's his ball right then everyone should say fine patrick that's your ball and on we go like there's no one can demonstrate that it's not his ball so you have to take his word for it and that that is the integrity of the sport and actually it is kind of just as uncivilized to be kind of banging the table going how does he know people accusing him of all sorts nobody knows do they so the the point of the 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 integrity works both ways doesn't it like if someone says that's my ball you, you you take his word for it and move on and i think mcelroy um in a kind of pretty double-edged way basically said that himself he said like i don't think he's done anything wrong all right there's been things in the past but on this particular time i think yeah there's there's no case to answer well i and mean I, think, I mean just going back to the 2019 rules and now the 2023 rules you know a lot of rules were changed in order to make that even more prominent. So, for example, uh, you no longer need to get your playing partner to come over and sort of say, yeah, that's in that condition, that's fine, which you used to. I mean, you'll remember that. Uh, You used to be able to do that. The whole whole point of, of, of some of these things was also to speed the game up. Well, game's too slow, right? So how can we speed the game up? Well, isn't it completely stupid that we have to faff around you know, waiting for another player to come over to say, yeah, you can do that. And then that player has to go back to their ball. You know, we're saying that this sport's built on integrity and honesty. Can't we just trust the player to do the right thing? It's essentially yeah. what the, the way the rules will take you down. 100%. And I think what probably what also gets lost um, in all this is his golf on Sunday was, uh, Monday rather, was absolutely crackers, wasn't it? Like even down to the two shots hit into the last green, like he absolutely flagged that second shot. Yeah, he was a little bit unlucky, wasn't he? Um, he was, yeah. But would you have preferred him to win or Rory? Well, mate, I mean, Rory's my is fast becoming my favourite sportsman of all time. Like, I just, I just, um, I think he's all of us, isn't he? It's just amazing. But at the risk, at the risk of social media, Tom, giving me like the evil one here, um, because it is possible. I did enjoy the sort of uh, established tour versus live mantra i did I enjoy it and i and i quite like it to happen again is that all well, right that's what we, said, that's what we said at the top of the show the top of the show like it's it's an unbelievable narrative isn't it um like i've been, i've got the um i've watched a couple of the the pga tour program whatever it's called that's coming to netflix um because we've got them on pre-release and i mean what a season for them to get that um it'll be it'll be compelling viewing won't it um but it doesn't make it right. The fact that the outcome is compelling on this particular instance, and it will be the same at the Masters, won't it? Um, doesn't make it right. Um, but the, yeah, just uh, without the Reed thing, like going right back to the 2014 Ryder Cup or whatever it was at Glen Eagles when he was Captain America and he was playing with Spieth and we thought they were going to be the American pair forever. Like he is, like, and I loved him at that. Like thought it was brilliant when he was shushing the crowd and all that sort of stuff. Like. That is some front, isn't it? Uh, and I always back him in majors. Always have done because I just think he's like absolutely gritty as you like. Love his golf. Think he's got his golf really relatable. As in, 
it's that little tight draw and he's tried to teach himself to be a fade and he puts like God, doesn't he? Uh, so, yeah, it's it's golf needs villains and it seems that they've got a really good one. Yeah, be careful. Alex said that and social media tore him a new one. <laughs> they? <laughs> they were not keen. I think we've done all right there, haven't we? Speaking of social media, yeah. world handicapping. So- we need to revisit yeah. this WHS stuff. So um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Steve and I did a podcast about this this change um, to how England golf are managing oversubscribed elite events where they're going to assess the playing histories of the players and they're going to they're going to favour basically people who've played competitive golf. So we then had this great big debate. You can go and listen to it. It's on this podcast channel two weeks ago. Um, Steve's. Um, turned a few of those things into into blogs for our for our website um and it's it's a big thing because it kind of feeds into is whs fit for purpose are we basically saying that golfers are deliberately manipulating the system um like how is this fixed um and some you've written about it today saying that you think that um the solution is for um people to just submit every single card and just make it mandatory that all 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 cards count um so there's there's no distinction basically between general general play and, and competitive golf and there's a guy here who's written in called uh called john this morning so he's he's written at 703 so that's he's jumped straight on after he's read your article passion i like it yeah and he says i believe all score cards should be entered i believe it will stop a lot of manipulation it would give a true reflection of your playing handicap he plays off 10.6. He knows at times he can play better. And in the summer when conditions are better, my handicap reduces. At times at the moment, due to weather conditions and injuries, his scores have not been good. And they've been in the mid 80s. Um, but he says because he submits all his cards, his, his handicap is a reflection of his, his playing ability. Um, so that is essentially your point, isn't it? And and thousands and thousands of people have read this piece already. Um, so it's something that is getting people's goat. Yeah, so I trailed some of this um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So if you listen to it, then bear with me for a second, just while I sort of go through my argument again for a minute or two. So, I mean, I, I took my own situation in the in the piece, which you can read on nationalclubgolfer.com. So over the last five months, I've entered four scores in total. It'll be nearly six months now, actually. Uh, not one of those has come since October the 1st. Um, but during that time, I've been for an awful lot of lessons, an awful lot of lessons. I think at least half a dozen. I've had an on, I've had an on course lesson. I spent lots of time waggling a club around in my backyard, trying to sort out an issue with my driver. I mean, that doesn't right. That that is that doesn't necessarily mean that my handicap, which rose from seven and a half to nearly eleven last year, will suddenly click back into gear. But it does mean, I think, at the moment that the work that I've done and the fact that I haven't put any scores in means that my handicap's out of date. Now, one of the things we were talked we were told about with WHS was it was it was supposed to be more reflective of your current playing ability. I think people get lost in that fact. They think that WHS is a little bit like Congo, which was all which was more about potential, I believe. You know, what could you potentially hit on a certain day? Well, WHS is supposed to be much more reactive it's supposed to mirror your form a lot more move up and move down as you play better and play worse and i think that the way that i interact with whs and the way that a lot of other golfers who are like me interact with whs is one of the major problems with the system because if you think about 
the genesis of WHS. It comes out of the USGA course rating system and slope. And although people have disputed this with me this morning, the the guy who basically runs tournament handicapping for the USGA told me that unless you tell people it's a practice round beforehand you have to put you have to put your score in so there's a culture in the United States of putting every score in people will say well they they fudge it and they do this and they do that and they manipulate whatever but the but the culture of the entirety of the sport in the United States is card in first moving forward if you've got a system that depends on or is designed where every score counts and one of the things we were told pre-whs was you need to get as many scores in as possible so before transition so your handicap can be reflective that that is going to carry on throughout the system it's not just a temporary thing up to november 2020 it's what the system is based on so if you're putting every general play score tom in your handicap is reflective of your current ability if i haven't put a score in for six months my handicap isn't reflective of my ability anymore and when you've got a system that depends on lots of inputs in order to work effectively then you start getting cracks in my opinion and that's where you start getting this well his handicap isn't correct and look he hasn't put any general player scores in or he hasn't played any competition scores or she hasn't done this in this competition and she hasn't done that in that competition it's where these arguments come from because you've got a system that at its heart depends on lots of inputs so what i said was the only way you can deal with this and i don't like the situation myself but and i don't like the solution that i'm providing really but when when you've got this situation then how do you do that how do you stop all these allegations how do you um make everyone on a more playing field or at least try to you have to put every general play score in you have to whether it's you know whether it's a social comp or other or social score or otherwise yeah, I mean, why is everything a Brexit analogy? So, I mean, we've entered into this system, but we've only sort of half entered into it. That's sort of fundamentally the problem, isn't it? Like yeah. the US, the US thing. I don't know who's disagreeing with you about that. It's just, a, it's just a point of fact. Like that's what they do. Um, and to try and get round pace of play, they have assumed score, expected score, don't they? So if you're basically on the green but you're more than 20 feet away i think it is then you just add two on and move on if you're playing a better ball and therefore and you can't contribute um and that is why when you play with americans and you're comparing your old um congo handicap to their uh us system handicap that they're miles out in terms of like their playing ability compared to here and that's not me saying americans are crap at golf it's just mean they've been using a different um, a different handicapping system um but we we're now in this in this place where we're like completely between two stools and it, it just means that people's handicaps are kind of like they're going off in v-shaped directions right because some yeah. people are doing it one way and other people are just doing it the other way so everyone's basically manipulating the handicap but, like I unknowingly mean, so i actually think we'll get to this situation eventually um, my personal view is is that if the home unions thought they could have done it, they might have tried it, but they understood instinctively that our golf is basically social. It's the complete opposite. And people say, well, I play in a lot of competitions. Yeah, you do, but we have a very defined competition season. And even within the competition season, there's a lot of golf that people play outside of competition. Golf, the whole 
sport of golf in this country and is is basically brought up on a social thing you know we we go and play we get together with our pals we have a pint we have a lunch afterwards you know there might be a couple of quid based on it but it's a whole social thing it's not always about every score counts and i think that if they try to implement that i mean like can you imagine the uproar you know, well, like just, WHS, we're two and a half years on with WHS and it's still causing a whole load of hassle. So imagine if you try to ping that one in there as well. But what I would say, Tom, just before you get into this, is that this stuff is starting, right? So in Twitter, people have been talking to me about uh, four ball scores and match play scores that uh, that are not allowed as acceptable scores for handicapping purposes. Well, that's right here, but in other parts of the world, four ball scores are absolutely a thing and we're starting to see them being being brought in here i think I, 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 apologies if i've got this wrong but i think ireland's bringing match playing you yeah, know so is, so yeah. so we get we're getting to this stage and that's what i think will happen we'll have a gradual creep where we'll introduce this and then we'll introduce four ball one of the things that people say about four ball is well if you've played in a four ball and you've been the dominant partner and you've had 16 of the 18 scores, why shouldn't your score count for handicap? You only need 10, right? You only need to put 10 scores in, 10 holes in under a minimum. So, you know, we're creeping that way already. So I don't think anyone has really appreciated like how seismic this is and how this is all sort of ultimately linked to independent golfer. That's the thing that I think is being missed here. And I think you touched on it with um, when you mentioned the word cultural. So it is is culturally what you do in the US and has been for some time. Their app is called the Gin Golf App, I think. Um, And I've played with loads of Americans in loads of different circumstances and they get their phone out of the pocket and they put the scores in and that's what they do. Um, And often you'll get in and they'll say, oh, I've... um, submitted an 80 for my index and you'll think well i've just played with you there's no way you've shot 80 you've picked up four times um and that's how they do it um obviously we are culturally in a totally different space where we play golf and then we turn up on a sunday to play in the medal in our best trousers with our shoes polished and our balls all marked and we're nervous as sin and we get our card and pencil out and we grind out to try and buffer to hit buffer zone and that's culturally what we do um we're also um culturally in this country most golfers are members of golf clubs who play with any sort of degree of regularity culturally in the states that's not the case there's way way more um pay and play golf played um so i think that what you're seeing is going to take like two decades before we get to the people the all these new golfers who are um signing up to independent golfer scheme um who are now growing up in a world where you do record your score on your phone that these people, when they get to our sort of age, it may be that that's what you do. You put your score in because the other thing that's cultural is that we all cling on to low is better. Like it's it comes back to this status point is that people do not want to submit a score for handicap unless it's sunny, dry. There's no wind. They've got the clubs clean. They've got their best trousers on. They're playing with their friends. Like the the circumstances in which some people want to submit a card have got to be perfect because they want their handicap to be as low as it can be because they want to be able to tell their mates in the clubhouse that they're an eight. Yeah, I mean, there's there's loads of that this morning that I'm looking at. I mean, one of the things that I'm being pinged on all the time this morning about is um, winter. 
So yeah, yeah I mean, it, you know, like measured course and things like that. So I mean, that that does point exactly, but, I think, but it, to what you're saying. It sort of misses the point that if everyone does the same thing, then it doesn't matter, does it? Because everyone's in the same boat. Yeah. Everyone's played in mud. Everyone's played in frost. Everyone's played in a gale. But that, as I think, you, I think the the nuanced thing here is is it's cultural, and we're seeing what we're seeing is a shift to try and get us recording every score, try and get us to do that digitally, try and get us to recognise um, nomads or independent golfers, people who are playing casually most of the time as just as valid as people who are playing in the monthly medal. That's the shift that's taken, that's the paradigm shift, This, this who are not the sponsor of this podcast. Um, uh, that's the paradigm shift that's taking place and it's going to be really, really painful. Um, and it, you just, I guess you wonder how much it's going to put people off. Yes, there is a, certainly those of us, like you and me, um, who grew up with the Congo system. Um, and that was what we've played to for basically all of our golfing lives and variations of it, obviously, um, you know, apart from the last couple of years, this is a massive, massive, massive change. Like, I mean, and, and they and they did say this. They said when it came out, this is the biggest change to handicapping in more than a century. And people went, well, you know, like blah, blah, blah. This this handicap's changed throughout, but not like this. Not like no. this. I mean, to your to your point, like, so I'm not playing golf at the moment and I'm playing crap, right? So to be honest with you, that it's a bit like if you haven't been running for a while and you put on some weight, you don't really feel like going for a run, right? But you don't have to you don't have to record that run. No one gets to sort of look at that and say, oh, bloody hell, Tom, slow down. I mean, you can do if you want. So if I go and play golf and I play crap because I'm just getting back into it, that's one thing. If you're then telling me I have to write down how bad I was, that's not encouraging me to go and play golf. That's making me thinking, no, I'm not doing that. And I'm exactly the same. And I did say in the piece that I don't like the potential solution that I'm talking about. I think it's how WHS will work best, but I don't like it. I mean, I'm, I'm likely to play less golf under those circumstances because i'm brought up in a culture of competition days are competition days like you said you get up for it you know you clean your clubs you get everything spick and span then you go out there and you try to perform do, do i want to do that every single time that i play so i think what you'd end up with is you'd end up with like two tiers well you know i'll try really hard for these board competitions all right well i still have to put my score in so maybe like i'm going to try as much as i as i possibly can but am i going to give it the same effort that uh, that i do in a medal i mean it's pretty hard to do that every time you play isn't it i used to get i used to play at a club where there were lots of competitions like lots of them and you'd get into july and you'd just be burned out with comps just be going christ can i just go and play a game of golf like for the for the fun of hitting a ball around and i i i I know there'll be a lot of golfers out there i play loads better when when i'm just casually pinging it about than whether you know i enjoy it more because it so but there's lots of stuff changing right um as in in how the game is played and um the sort of rules of the game obviously changing all the time and i guess those two things go hand in hand because this idea of recording every score like rounds will take a long time i don't think it's a stereotype to say that rounds in america take longer they do um anyone who's been stuck behind an american group at Birkdale or whatever knows how long it takes um so and part of that is because but what we also seen is a change in the rules to try and speed play up, right? So yeah. ready golf, the idea of out of bounds being treated like a lateral. Um 
this thing that I just talked we just talked about earlier about the concept of a bush drop, like as in if you if it's in the bush, let's drop it. I bet that's not far off. Um, so like these these things, I guess, all speak to like this is what people want you to do is just like be playing quickly, be playing as if it doesn't matter, but recording it. Which yeah, that's not that's not how people do it. No, and and as you say, you know, if that situation is ever to arrive here, it's not going to take years. It's going to take decades. It's going to take right. a completely new generation of golfer who've grown up with WHS in the same way that we grew up with Congo, um, in order to facilitate that change. So I think if you like, we're in our mid forties, um, but we're also right at the sort of if there is a cutting edge in golf, goodness sake, we're at the sort of cutting edge of it. So we're sort of like understand it living and breathing it every day i can't see me doing it so you have to sort of eradicate us as a generation as of people who are going to adopt that way of of engaging with golf um and i'm not so i'm not saying that as a sort of um a protest my kids are off school today because the teachers strike i'm not like getting my placard out and for congo i'm just saying that it's a cultural thing as you just said and that's really really difficult to shift yeah, I mean, you talked earlier on about uh, Brexit, and I don't want to make this a Brexit thing, but that again is a cultural thing, right? And that's yeah. why we're st- and that's why we're still talking about it a decade on, because yeah. it's a it's a cultural thing, and cultural things are really hard to change and to yeah. shift. And 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 I, I agree with you, Tom, entirely. You know, this is not oh, we'll have sorted this out next year. Um, this is the, we're going to be we're going to be struggling with WHS if if for those people who don't like it or embracing it for those who do for some time to come before we find some sort of unanimity between all of us but do you know what the, the thing one of the things about it is that well two things one i think that the stuff we're talking about is that it's a, a big change takes a long time to embed i think that makes the decision that they've made to look at general play scores and basically say they're not valid even stranger because on the other hand they're saying the opposite and we covered that last week and the second thing is that it just says if you change something right change it properly like go all the way and then don't change your mind you can't do this halfway house and then sort of nibble back on it and otherwise you don't get changed you just get a mess i mean but but i think uh that's not unique to here. I don't know this for a fact, but my, my understanding is that the various different federations are importing and exporting various bits of WHS. So this is one of the things I laugh about when people say it's a world handicap system. It's not. It's not a world handicap system because not everybody's doing the same thing. And, and yeah. that goes and that goes from how we enter our scores to whether we can put a score in for handicap in another country. In terms of us, it's not being done the same way. And, and in that set, and in that sense, at least, it's not it's not doing what it was supposed to do. Um, I, I actually I, there's a lot I like about the system. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot that I like about it, uh, particularly the way that your handicap changes um determine dependent on where you play and that you see that handicap change up front rather than in maybe sss or css like you used to in the past i really yeah. do think that's a positive thing when they sort out this courses thing eventually god knows when that'll be it'll be really good to go to scotland and play a course maybe like the old course and have a score that's always there on your record of your day a premier venue whether it's a good day or a bad day that'll that'll be absolutely fantastic i do like the fact that the handicap system moves a lot more with your ability congo was not you you could be in poor form for years 
with Kongu and basically be stuck um, unless your handicap committee took pity on you. And how many of them did that, frankly, um, yeah. before before computerized systems? So there's a lot about the system that I think is really positive. But I agree with you entirely. We either had to do this together or not at all. This kind of mismatch that we've got is responsible for a lot of the issues that people are complaining about, in my opinion. Yeah, and that goes back to the sort of different software between country and all the rest of it. Part because one of the things I was going to say about this is that why can't we use WHS but use it on the old system where you'd had this distinction between competition and general play? But you can't, can you? Because your handicap won't move quick enough. No, and 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 if you think about how it was designed, in my uh, how I think it was designed, it's completely anathema to then say we're not going to have general play scores. It's it's like it goes against everything that the RNA and the USGA are trying to do, which is open handicapping up and make it much more available and much more accessible to people and make it easier for people to get a handicap. I mean, that that I know we haven't talked about that, but that is the fundamental point of all of this, was to make handicapping more open. I understand people don't like that. There are things that people don't like about that. You mentioned independent golfers, you know, being a prominent one. But the whole point of it is to make it easier for people to hold a handicap. And if you take general play scores out of it and you say to people, right, well, to get handicap, you have to go back to where you were and you have to put your scores and you have to maintain a C on your on your on your number and you have to maintain a competition handicap. It just it just won't work. The whole thing will fall down. So and I guess part of the sort of riding back on some of it is just because people are worried that the, as in uh, the unions are worried about um, existing golfers getting cross and sort of drifting away. Um, I'm going to try and wrap it up. So I, I was once at a, um, I think it was a GCMA conference actually. Um, and there was a lady speaking there called Kate Bickerstaff, who I think she's now back at MS. She's had various jobs at MS over the years. Um, and she was talking about the MS customer and kind of like the way that retail retailers change. And she said that this this was her message to golf at the time was like you shouldn't be scared of change because existing golfers don't like it. Because those existing golfers will still play the game. They might grumble about the fact that things have changed a bit and you can now wear a hoodie or whatever else, but they're not going to stop playing because you've changed something. But by changing something, you've got an opportunity to prep perhaps win over some new golfers. Bear in mind, she's talking about this from an M&S perspective. It's like the most legacy thing in the world mm. that we could all draw a picture of an M&S customer, right? And they're trying to, they're obviously trying to change to attract new customers. And that's the biggest thing for me is that I I think we've been in, in this fundamental change. I think we've been too scared to make the change properly. Yeah, I agree. It's deep, man. It's deep. That, is, that, that is deep. It's a good way to finish, isn't it? With a profound point. What the hell are we going to talk about next week? Probably Who something can to do say? with the, probably, probably something to do with the world handicap system. Who can say? <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. Uh properly enjoyed that. Um enjoyed tiptoeing around the rules debate. Um I hope you can't hear my kids in the background. Uh WHS, I think is just it's the gift that keeps on giving from a discussion point of view. Um, I hope it's not upsetting your week weekly golf too much. We're mad keen to hear about um, all you've got to say about it. So do write in uh, to Steve or I or find us on um, social media um, and do keep reading Steve's regular output on the topic because it's it's insightful stuff uh, and he knows what he's talking about. I like to try anyway. People soon tell me if I get it wrong. Yeah. 
Bye. We'll see you next week, Tom. Cheers. See you, mate.